Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When I called up Randy Weingarten, the head of the American Federation of Teachers, I couldn't help but notice that every couple of minutes, our conversation would be interrupted by sirens. I think what's happening is that in New York, what you're starting to hear again, like we heard in March and April, is an ambulance every few minutes. Randy lives just on the other side of the Bronx, next to a big hospital run by Columbia University. So Uptown has a very, very high um, COVID rate right now. The COVID rate, it was part of why I'd wanted to talk to Randy. Because in spite of those numbers ticking up, many of the teachers she represents in New York City returned to the classroom this week. It was the latest twist in a rocky start to the city's school year. First, school was delayed, and then in-person learning was shut down completely a few weeks back, as the city scrambled to meet the demands of union leaders, people like Randy. So I wanted to hear from Randy herself. What changed? We now have the data that shows that schools, that, that, that younger kids have followed the rules and they don't transmit and that teachers in schools have followed the rules. And so there's not the transmission in schools, in, in, in early ed schools, that people had feared. That's really good news. But Randy still isn't making a lot of promises about how long school buildings can stay open. It scares me, but I think part of the dilemma right now and part of why all of us are concerned is basically, you know, when does the dam break in all of this stuff? Schools are not an island. At one point or another, the community spread issue is going to be an issue. Today on the show, when will the coronavirus be under control enough that teachers and kids can go back to class? And how long can they stay there? It's a question Randy Weingarten has been puzzling out in public for months. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. Randy Weingarten focuses a lot of her frustration about COVID-19, one place, the Trump administration. She says from the beginning, they've kept information about the virus from stakeholders, people like her. As early as February, before the virus even had a name, Randy was teaming up with other union leaders, trying to pressure the administration to act. She was still talking about containing the coronavirus back then. She started raising the idea that schools might have to shut down, Pretty soon after that, in an appearance on CNN, right at the beginning of March, she issued a kind of warning. Talk about precautions and preparedness. Look, there may be a situation where schools will be closed. So I was just going to ask. The week that I was on CNN, you know, as much as I didn't want schools to close, 
you, you, you didn't know what was going to happen with this contagion. And I thought it was important to actually give people notice. I think part of the failure here is a failure of communication. We didn't have the information and clearly the administration was not talking. If you're not getting something consistent from the federal government, if you don't have what you know President Obama did during Ebola, you just had the doctors every day do a briefing. If there's nobody to trust it and you're not getting a consistent message, then what was happening is you just saw lots of panic. And I felt like it was important to start alerting teachers and parents that um, we didn't know what was going to happen. We know that this was serious and that, you know, there might be closures. So that's why I started raising it um, at the, you know, in the beginning of March. But then that weekend, right, the weekend right before St. Patty's Day, um, once one school district closed that you just saw, you know, a bunch of closures. Um, and But everybody thought it was only going to be for two weeks. Yeah. I mean, I remember that. I had a calendar in my house where I was sort of marking off, okay, how much time are the kids going to be home with us? How how long are we going to be doing this? And we didn't know. Yeah. But I think what's interesting listening to you is that over the months that followed the initial shutdown of schools, it seemed like there was such a tug of war between people in government and folks like you who advocate for your members. And what I'm hearing from you is that the trust between these two sides was broken very early on, like before we even really knew what was happening. What was broken was was that the people who should have known what was going on weren't talking or were denying. and But you could see from facts on the ground that there was this very dangerous virus that was really harming people. And so it creates huge cognitive dissonance. And, and, and what I actually saw was that on the ground, you know, superintendents and our union reps were working as closely as they could and parents were listening to, to everyone and teachers then turned on a dime to try to do remote education. So there was huge cooperation on the ground initially but with an absence of knowledge about what was going on. Randy's always been pretty clear. She wanted school buildings to open back up, but she wanted them to open up safely. Randy's membership was clear, too. Back in June, 76% of her teachers said they were ready to return to their classrooms in the fall. But over the summer, something shifted. President Trump began advocating for teachers to return to school. Randy's membership bristled, and. Randy's tone changed too. Look, I'm a school teacher at heart. You have to be optimistic when you're a school teacher. You have to see, you know, you see potential everywhere, particularly with children. But then it went from optimism to anger. Over the summer, watching the Trump administration and Betsy DeVos and others attempt to pit parents against educators and, 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 and not have a national plan and not do national resources and not do anything to help, but then try to use it politically to pit the needs of parents and the needs of teachers. And they weren't even doing any money for childcare and you saw what was going on. I'm just, I, I became livid because it was 
parents and students and educators were all pawns in whatever Trump was doing and whatever DeVos was doing. And so it was really frustrating to try to figure out what do you do in the fall? You got basically state after state after state doing different things. I was on Cuomo's um, school reopening committee in New York. And so we had access to lots of information from there as well as from other places. But every state was doing things differently. And, and ultimately, you didn't have the underlying trust that you need to have in a public health pandemic where people know what's going on. And then you had all the fatigue and the economic issues, all of which were really, really, really important. And so what happens to kids and what happens to teachers? And at the end of the day, basically, all of the um, responsibility that was supposed to be done from the federal government, state government, city governments, all of that, you know, particularly the federal government completely abdicated its responsibility. You mean the money wasn't there? The money wasn't there, but also the guidance. So then it becomes left to local districts and teachers to figure out what to do in a national once in a century pandemic. I mean, you gave this speech at your annual meeting that the Washington Post called blistering and I mean, you can hear in your voice now that all of this passion is in you. (laughs) But you really pointed the finger at Donald Trump. President Trump's response has been chaotic and catastrophic. Instead of deploying the public health tools at his disposal, he's downplayed the threat, dismissed the advice of our nation's top scientists and public health experts, and rushed to reopen. And you said, you know, the country's confronting three crises, this public health crisis, an economic crisis, and a crisis of racial justice. And one factor, one person, is making them all worse, Donald Trump. And then you raise the specter of strikes. Right. And it seemed to me like an intentional escalation. Is that fair? I do a lot of things with some forethought and with intentionality. I think that if you are a labor leader, you have to do that. It's not, you know, you cannot simply do things because of emotion or passion as much as you would like to. Purpose has to be, you know, aligned with passion here. The point about a safety strike was that if we couldn't get the responsible agents to do what they needed to do, then we needed to actually raise the specter of withholding services to get what we needed to do. Hmm. Because we knew that educators wanted to be in school in person if we had the safeguards in place. We knew that parents needed that kind of normalcy for their kids. We knew that kids needed education. Our, 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 our members you know, were never about well, education will help open the economy. Our members are about education will help children. So we knew, we knew all that, but we weren't getting, you know, what we were seeing in school district after school district was, well, we don't have the resources. So even though CDC says that you need masks, we don't have masks. We don't have the resources. So, you know, we are not gonna be able to do the physical distancing. You know, so so we were getting, we don't have the resources, so we're going to forsake your health and safety and students' health and safety. And we were like, no, that's not okay with us. But I wonder if you ever saw this moment in the summer as a kind of opportunity 
Because the president clearly wanted people back in school. He kept having events and giving speeches and bringing it up. So this is clearly something he wanted. Yes. And I wondered if you ever thought, all right, then I'm going to go to him and be like, if you want this, here's what we need. Look, we always saw this as an opportunity, but they have never talked to us. Meaning uh, Betsy DeVos had one, you know, when she was first confirmed, I wrote to her and suggested that she come to schools with me. And um, we, um, and she did. And that was the last time I had a conversation with her. Um, they just, you know, they refused to talk to us. And so what the irony here is that we actually had the same wish about reopening schools but we had one more word there, safely, for students. And so the, the great irony is that they would have actually found a willing partner in terms of doing this. But I think that politically, what I recall is this. Joe Biden was at the NEA convention over July 4th weekend. The National Educators Association. The National Educators Association. And all of a sudden, the next couple of days um, after that, Donald Trump decided to um, start with the tweeting, reopen schools right now. And I think he thought, and his people must have thought, that this was a good way of pitting people against each other, as opposed to understanding that our union and our members really believed that if we could reopen schools safely in the fall, in person, we should try to do that. Well, I wonder if in some ways he was right. Because you did have this huge surge of members who did want to return to the classroom. But when he started saying, you got to get back in there, it seems like it changed the tide a little bit. Well, I think what happened was when, first off, he's a polarizing figure regardless. So the moment Trump says anything, you have lots of people who immediately will wonder why, you know, what his motivations are. So there's an immediate um, you know, wondering what he was up to. Having said that, the real problem in terms of Trump, what Trump did was that he acted as if teachers were dispensable and children were dismissible. The other thing that was going on is that CDC was watering down safeguards. The more you heard Trump's rhetoric, the more you saw CDC watering down its rhetoric and the safeguards, and that also created real distrust. Back with more What Next after the break. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. There's a bit of early data that caught my attention as I was preparing to talk to Randy Weingarten. A couple of political scientists had looked at plans schools had made in the fall to get kids learning again. And then they cross-referenced that with union information. 
they found districts with stronger unions seemed less likely to be holding in-person classes. But when I asked her about this, Randy said it was just too simple to blame unions for the fact that so many kids are still learning from home. Because the districts with the strongest unions need them. They're often in urban areas where educators have good reasons to distrust the officials overseeing them. And so you see in the biggest, you know, in the cities where you've had long-term austerity issues where windows don't open, where there's no soap in schools, those are the places where you see school systems not being able to open in person because they couldn't stand up the safeguards. And so you see that in Chicago, you saw that in Philadelphia. So you're saying it's the underlying issues that existed previously. Exactly. So the fact is that we know, and many of us have wanted to reopen school buildings, but we go through the kind of safeguards that you need. And frankly, private schools were able to do them very quickly. And, you know, in in many um, suburban schools, where they had space and they could do outdoor learning and things like that, you saw that as well. But what has happened in the last few weeks is you're seeing, you know, school systems all across America close again because of the spread. And, you know, what we, and, and, and what you saw as well is the successful use of, you know, of collective bargaining in Detroit, in, in New York city, in Boston, to actually reopen schools. Randy's job is to tout her successes. So I asked her to do something else for me, to tell me about a city that was struggling to reopen and explain if the union isn't holding things up, what is? I picked Chicago, where Mayor Lori Lightfoot wants the schools to open in January, but the teachers' union just filed an injunction to stop her. What is going on in Chicago is that the mayor won't actually have any conversations with the uh, the Chicago Teachers Union about opening up. The mayor is just basically dictating when it should open and how, and they won't actually talk to the educators. That's why the educators went to court. There, there's lots of people in Chicago that believe that schools should reopen safely, but the mayor refuses to talk to the school teachers. Why? What's the reasoning? Um, you will have to ask her. I don't know. I think it's still, there's still lots of, lots of um, real tension and agitation from the strike. That was like a year or two ago. Yeah. There are times that a strike really changes the climate and the culture because nobody ever wants to get there again. But in Chicago, the tensions are still extant. And so the difference is you have in Boston and in Chicago and New York, you have real conversations between the educators and the, and the systems. And it's not like these conversations are easy because everybody's fearful. But in Chicago, there's not a conversation and there's not a conversation. You're never going to create trust because it's the teachers and the paras and the other workers in schools that are going to lift up students and, and so she's not talking to them. But it leaves this vacuum where people can say, well, the teachers union and their document in Chicago, they said that in order to open up, they wanted paid sick leave and Medicare for all, stuff that is too hard to resolve 
quickly. Right. But they're not. I mean, look, I know that we have a couple of locals that have said that we want Medicare for all and we want all sorts of other things happening. But if you look very carefully at what the AFT said, um, we have been very clear that ultimately what we are bargaining for are the essential safeguards that's needed right now to reopen schools. You know, the fact that people ask for the moon and the stars, we all ask for that. And, and that's something that, you know, that, that people have, you know, want in terms of reimagining schools. We hear management say this all the time. This is a moment to reimagine. And this is what I think we would want to do if we could reimagine. So I think that the that this is not this is not an issue about Medicare for all. This is an issue of do you have a ventilation system that actually works in a school? From the very beginning, Randy's been careful about how she talks about what unions need to get their teachers back in school buildings. She said before teachers return, the virus needs to be under control. But of course, the virus isn't under control, not by a long shot. I mean, I think what, what people are talking about, what I'm, we're talking about, is you've got to plateau what's going on. You can't have the virus going in the wrong direction. I mean, everyone who's gotten sick understands the extent to which this virus is dangerous to people's lives. And we have to plateau it. We have to get it going in the other direction. But New York City opened with rates rising. Was that a sort of calculated risk? Well, I think that New York City, I think that that there was great confidence initially in um, Governor Cuomo's um, uh, regional health um, approach. Um, and we saw that in September and October, it actually worked and there were over 300 schools that opened and closed in September and October using those triggers. The triggers that are still really important in New York City are um, that if there's two unrelated cases in a school, if there's one case in a school, that classroom closes. If there's two unrelated cases in a school, a school is going to close for two weeks. If the school rate gets to 2%, a school is going to close. If the rates in community are over 9%, the schools are going to close in that area. I think it's going to be very, very important to have the statistics I just said um, out there communicated to parents and to teachers, because we have to, first and foremost, make sure that people stay alive. Do you think schools are going to be open around the country come spring? I hope so. Randy Weingarten, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Randy Weingarten is the president of the American Federation of Teachers. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Daniel Hewitt, Mary Wilson, and Davis Land. We are getting a ton of help from Franny Kelly these days. Alicia Montgomery and Allison Benedict, they help steer this ship. And I'm Mary Harris. I'll catch you back in this feed tomorrow. Tomorrow. 